1: Hello! Welcome back to Old Millennials, a deep dive on shallow topics from the late 90s and early 2000s. We are your hosts, I'm Emily. And I'm Margot. Welcome back, we're excited today because we are going to be talking about the one, the only, Miss Jennifer Lopez.
3: It might be a J-Lo-naissance. Yes. Currently, but we're going to take you back to the peak of her rom-com career today.
1: And boy did she have one.
3: Yes, I mean, as much as I want to talk about Hustlers or her most recent tour, where she celebrated being fifty, and um, fabulous. Yes, her runway walk that was a Versace Google Images spawncon subterfuge that you didn't even see. I know she wore
1: the dress, but you so
3: goddamn good. Did you hear that it's actually sponsored by Google Images though? That's, that's what that's
1: amazing.
3: She actually made SpawnCon money. It's an actual sponsorship. That's
1: amazing. Because that's, they were
3: celebrating. She's the very first Google image to have ever been archived in that dress.
1: To our Mountain View listeners, if any of you had anything to do with that collaboration, please email us. I don't at gmail.com.
3: It must be some sort of ad agency that brokered that deal. I don't know how else that would have worked. You know, her Adorably high-key Instagram boyfriend slash fiancé who used to be a baseball player but mostly is known for wearing polos now. We can't talk about any of that. That's I mean, not. hopefully she obviously gets nominated for an Oscar because we are team justice for the movie Selena. Of course. But right now... Anything
1: for Selena's.
3: J-Lo's career has not only persisted but she's thrived. I feel like since this rom-com period she has only gone on to do bigger and better things. Do you yes. not agree?
1: Oh, no. And made a ton of money while doing it.
3: Also has a perfume empire, which we're yeah. not talking about today. We're, not we're just getting into that. There's too much. You got to break Jenny from it, the block yeah. up into different pieces. You can't yeah. just go all in. Too much. This would be like a nine-hour episode.
1: It would be like a Ken Burns history docuseries.
3: But verbal and not any visuals because that's a lot more work than even just this podcast so is. It for sure. She has weathered high-profile relationships with Ben Affleck and Diddy, and a bunch of Mark other Anthony. fuck. A bunch of other yeah. fuck boys. I was going to say. <laughs> she had an ill-fated Grammy performance last year, and also she's weathered Geely. Yes. She's had verifiable hits in TV and music and movies, which is wild. Obviously, she's more popular now than she's ever been, and she's incredibly strategic in her career. And even though she's been a certified diva for some time, I think her rom-com career proves that not only is she a lead, but she can make a box office hit even if it's a complete turd. So... J. Lo is the queen of busy business ladies who are too busy to fall in love, which is typically a lifetime trope, but because of her star power, even as far back as 2001 with The Wedding Planner, when it wasn't quite yet verified yet that she was going to be this total superstar because I believe her efforts were still pretty split down the middle between movies and music, but she was getting away from TV, and her, her charisma and her star power otherwise elevated this kind of, like, so-so script, which is, like, a theme throughout all of these movies. For sure. The Wedding Planner from 2001 is rotten at 16%. And in the Jennifer Lopez canon, the Wedding Planner is sandwiched between the cell and angel eyes, which is, um... Wow. What a break. I mean, I guess she got sick of the dark. Yes. Because you wanted to, when we were initially trying to put together this episode, you wanted to include angel eyes. (laughs) (laughs)
1: came out of my mouth and
3: then I was like mm. and I corrected her and said that's not a rom-com <laughs> that's also why I put enough in here initially and was like that is also not a rom-com no we we can touch on it but um let's just start with something light and fluffy the wedding planner is exactly that it goes down real smooth yes it's directed by Adam Shankman, who, this is his second appearance on this podcast. Yeah. It was written by Michael Ellis, who writes on Insatiable, that Netflix show now, yeah. and Pamela Falk, who has done this and one other credit to her name, and this came out in January of 2001. The setup is J-Lo plays Mary Fiore, a San Francisco wedding planner with a lot of rules, but when she meets Steve, played by the spokesperson of Lincoln Cars now, she breaks her JK, card. I'll
1: just keep living. <laughs>
3: She breaks her cardinal rule to never fall in love with the groom. She lives by the old adage of those who can't wed plan, <laughs> which is like <laughs> insane. And she says it very early on. About some, I remember she has this like wild headset that's sort of like a precursor to Bluetooth, but like uglier. Yes. And she goes around and like commands this wedding, and it's like really perfect, and a single tear is shed by the planner she and the wedding. She
1: the best man. Yes, speech.
3: She like. does everything, and honestly, I blame mean Jennifer Lopez for giving me a false expectation of what wedding planners can do. They're very expensive. Nobody mentions how much money she probably charges. I mean, I get that she lives in San Francisco, but it is 2001. But I guess that's the end of like that's the about dot com
1: bubble. It's about
3: to it's about to burst. We're on the we're on the bubble. Uh, But in order for her to live there, yeah, as a wedding planner, she's got to charge a lot. And she really does whip it all together. She can do it all. Amazing. She is inexplicably made to be Italian, even though all of these Catholic cliches would have worked just fine if she was Latina. Mary is of a certain age aka late 20s, early 30s. Oh no. And is being pressured by her father Salvatore, who is played by Alex Rocco to get married and give him great kids ASAP because of course she's gonna wither away and die if she doesn't. duh, everybody knows that. That's what happens when you turn 30.
1: Goodbye.
3: He tries to like hurry this along by reintroducing her to a childhood acquaintance, Massimo. He's the guy from Grey's Anatomy. Take it away, Emily. I don't remember what you said earlier. He was
1: Alex on Grey's Anatomy. I don't know if he's still on the show. I stopped watching after two seasons.
3: Well, as I said earlier, Catherine Heigl was off the show after two seasons, right? So I'm sure that was the end of his tenor. Probably. So Mary declines the setup and goes about her business of planning a wedding to catering heiress I'm sorry it's an heiress to a catering fortune I don't know what who are her parents there like are so
1: many like life served on a platter puns that I want to throw out here right now I mean is
3: her father the founder of subway sandwiches like I, mean, I don't understand no
1: specialties maybe specialties yeah
3: but it's two thousand and one specialties wasn't here yet was it not I don't recall well I, I guess know. I wasn't invited I wasn't, to a sad I- offer i wasn't invited to a sad conference office lunch at this point you
1: didn't have any public speaking forums to Mm -hmm. go to when you were 14
3: no and when we did go away on like mock trial or debate like field trips so the mormon girl in our group who was in both of those teams with me her family owned like the local sandwich shop so her parents always made us food so great yeah and she also supplied the van because see the mormon thing she had six siblings (laughs) The catering heiress. My bad. Fran, played by Bridget Wilson Sampras.
1: Mrs. Pete Sampras.
3: (laughs) And also the hot girl from Billy Madison.
1: Veronica
3: Vaughn. So she plans... um, So Mary plans Fran's wedding to her longtime boyfriend, quote-unquote, Eddie. This is important later on. Tuck that one behind your ear. The meat cute When Mary gets her shoe stuck in a manhole cover on an exceptionally clean San Francisco street, she looks <laughs> up, only to see a speeding dumpster coming right at her, which is hashtag relatable content. That
1: is very relatable content.
3: She starts to say a quick prayer, but wouldn't you know, just in the nick of time, she is saved by a handsome, slightly southern stranger. When, when she is out of harm's way, she whispers the iconic line, you saved my shoe and my life, and then faints. She later wakes up in the hospital, and she meets Steve, who is also a pediatrician who saved her life. And she invites him to go along with her and Penny, played by Judy Motherfucking Greer. love you, girl. Uh, with them to an outdoor movie night that devolves into Mary and Steve dancing like you do. Just a side note from like personal experience over here. Um, I don't believe any dates ever go down like that in San Francisco. No,
1: of course not.
3: An old-timey movie, and then like you just slow dance? What is this? And
1: you don't you haven't seen like a junkie in the corner or something like that or,
3: or even just it being like organized. And also there are only like 10 people there. I fucking wish I went to any Anything. public event in San Francisco which had 10 people.
1: San Francisco is just a series of waiting in lines for things. And also it's not
3: windy, and they shot that in Golden Gate Park. I do not buy this.
1: No drum circles.
3: Come on. <laughs> no lost tourists in Golden Gate Park? I don't fucking buy it, you guys. There is a scam afoot. Call anyway.
1: Caroline Calloway.
3: <laughs> little does Mary know, but she is dancing with the groom, otherwise known as Eddie. Uh-oh. Dun, dun, dun. So Steve, Eddie, and his name is now fourth, henceforth Steve Eddie. Mary and Steve, once she finds out that Steve is also Eddie and also this groom... Like all good Catholics, decides to shove it deep down inside and pretend like nothing ever happened between the two of them. Perfectly healthy, perfectly normal, everybody knows that's exactly what you do. So, as I'm sure Mary knows, the planning of a wedding is a process that usually takes months. So, maybe pretending or not acknowledging that you guys ever had some sort of, like, weird first date is not the best approach. But, of course, this is neither here nor there because this is a rom-com, so she needs to be spending more time with Steve. And definitely never, ever bring up the fact that they went on that date. This is also the point in the movie where Massimo decides to stalk Mary into marrying him. And it's also like hand waved away like, Oh, those crazy Italians. Roberto Benini, remember him? He's kooky in Italian. What they just stalk women, it's fine. <laughs> He just shows up and like ru and like makes her look unprofessional, and, like ruins her day. And she keeps telling him to leave her alone. He does not do it, and he like spills wine on her, and the whole thing's like very embarrassing. I mean, I understand his purpose in this movie, narratively speaking, but um, I feel like a- upon a second rewatch in uh, 2019 times, it might not hold up as well. No, at the midpoint of the movie. Fran naturally has to take a week-long business trip in the middle of planning her wedding. As one
1: does.
3: Everybody knows you schedule a week-long business trip when you're up to your fucking eyeballs with wedding planning. That's what everybody does. It's in all of the wedding planning books. Just check online. Just check the knot. Everybody knows. Fran encourages Mary and Steve to spend more time together and obviously fall in love. Mary has her own Surrey with the Fringe on top in front of Ira! Moments when she and Steve run into her ex, who is now married and expecting a baby with the woman that he cheated on her with. Which, again, relatable content, have literally been there. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Yep, yep. It was not chill. Mary tells Steve about it later, and it leads him to tell her that he's in love with her. But because JLo is nothing but a professional and also Catholic, she turns him down and, again, shoves her feelings just deep down inside there. She eventually agrees to... Mary Massimo, after a combination of, like, badgering and also the scene with her father, which is actually quite beautiful, and if I recall correctly, I cried in the theater when I watched it, but her father gives her this whole spiel, because this whole time, Mary, throughout the movie, is like, I want a marriage like my parents. They were so in love. My parents were in love. Like, they were the best, and oh my God, it was so ideal. And her father finally comes clean and tells her that his marriage to her mother was actually an arranged marriage and at first her mother hated him and then hate and then one time early on in their marriage he got very sick and she took care of him and that sort of like resentment like slowly melted away and it turned into respect which turned into friendship which eventually turned into love and I don't know why but I think that monologue is a fucking bop it's so good It is. it gets me every time and it's like a combo of Alex Rocco who is a very talented actor R.I.P. and um just I feel like this is probably the best written part of the whole movie. She tells Masimo that she agrees to marry him via a dollhouse. And I remember I like that scene, but also maybe on second glance, it's a little creepy. Like, dollhouses are inherently creepy.
1: They always are.
3: Towards the end... After Mary decides to marry Massimo, she thinks this is a really good idea to have a double wedding. So, Fran and Steve and Mary and Massimo are getting married on the same day, but in like a Flintstones esque twist, one's getting married at like the Ritz Carlton in San Francisco, and then Mary, obviously being like, you know, homely, humble, Mary is gonna get married at City Hall. Mary goes to town hall to go get married to Massimo. Steve asks Fran if they're doing the right thing right before their wedding because I think Fran has a panic attack and Judy Greer goes to like calm her down because she's dealing with this high profile wedding and she tells hit she tells Judy Greer that she needs to talk to Steve and that's when they come to this mutual conclusion that they shouldn't be together sort of like the sweetest thing which is another movie that we talked about earlier yes. And they leave on good terms, and Fran, like a fucking queen, goes off to, like, enjoy her honeymoon alone. So, like, props to fucking Fran. Penny reveals to Steve what Mary's marriage plans are, and he rushes over to stop her. In an M. Night Shyamalan-esque twist at the town hall wedding, Mary's dad stops the ceremony, realizing that this wedding is not what Mary wants. Mary insists that life is not a fairy tale, and that she's going to marry Massimo, and that it's the right thing to do. But Massimo realizes that this is what she wants, and he stops the wedding, and he decides to stop stalking her, and he leaves. Steve arrives to find Mary's father and Massimo, and they tell Steve that she called off the wedding, she didn't get married, and that she's at that outdoor movie park deal, which happens very frequently, apparently. Yeah. Maybe it's summer. Is it Sundown Cinema? You think? Probably. Anyway, he rushes over to go and find her, and they have this whole like moment about M and M's, and they slow dance, and they end up happily ever after, and they finally kiss. Some fun facts about this movie, especially this one. This is my favorite. I love Would Have Been Casting. I don't know why. It really tickles me. Originally, Mary and Steve were first supposed to be played by Jennifer Love Hewitt and Brendan Frazier. What? Yes. First. Which, in 2001 times, like, that kind of makes sense. It's, you know, around the time of I Know What You Did Last Summer and The Mummy. Like, all of that kind of tracks for me. So they dropped out. And then they were replaced with Sarah Michelle Gellar and Freddie Prinze Jr., Which also makes sense, but then scheduling conflicts and other stuff happened, so then they had to drop out. They probably went to go, like, do the Scooby-Doo movie.
1: Yeah.
3: So J-Lo and McConaughey were actually the third choice. Wow. The wedding planner is often compared to my best friend's wedding... Monster Law is also compared to another movie, which is why I put that little fun fact in there. Out of Failure to Launch, How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days, and this movie, McConaughey ranks The Wedding Planner dead fucking last. What an idiot. I actually think it goes How to Lose a Guy, Wedding Planner, and then Failure to Launch.
1: I would agree with that. I don't know why he would think Failure to Launch is a better movie. I have recently rewatched it, and yeah, he and SJP don't really have that much chemistry. They don't.
3: I really don't think that... Especially in that role, I don't feel like she would have fallen for that guy. Maybe no. if she were more Carrie, and also, like, really early season Carrie. Yeah. She might have, like, dated him to get back a Big or something, and I could have conceivably bought into that. But in the movie, I was just like, you guys don't have any chemistry, and it's kind of boring, and I don't think I finished it, but I definitely watched it on the plane. How to Lose a Guy is just a really good, dumb rom-com. It's perfect. And as Matthew McConaughey said in this episode of Watch What Happens, where he ranked all of these movies... How to Lose a Guy is apparently a good mailbox movie, which means that he gets a fat residual check all the time because this movie is playing constantly. It's
1: always on it's USA. On,
3: well, it's on E. Yes. It's on Bravo, actually, yes. too. It's on TNT. It's on everything. I feel and like you could right. catch it at least once a month if you try.
1: Yeah, that makes perfect sense.
3: Jayla was nominated for a Razzie for Worst worst Actress, which is rude. I thought she actually was really good in this movie as sort of like a timid, uptight woman who doesn't believe she deserves love and she should only do it for other people. There
1: had to have been far worse movies that came out that year than that movie.
3: Because we're not How Did This Get Made, I did not look up the worst movies that came out that year since <laughs> so it's just centered on J-Lo. But this movie was critically panned, and it made $13 million Super Bowl weekend, which was its opening weekend. It overall made $60 million with a $35 million budget, which I don't think is bad. But it, again, goes along with sort of the narrative that follows this period of... Her movies where they were critically planned, but then they made back all of their money, so it wasn't like a total bust. And it obviously she just like cruises on by anyway. It's just yeah. another thing. She has 111 credits, so this is just like another notch, you know.
1: Way to go J Lo.
3: Yeah, I mean, you know, there's also what was that movie or that TV show she did with Ray Liotta a couple years ago that actually wasn't bad, like oh, Dark Blue or something. Yeah. Anyway, like there are like rookie two seasons. Blue. Rookie Blue. No, that's something that whatever doesn't matter. Yeah. Uh, Either way, she's got some like a lot of TV in there too, but she's got a shit ton of credits. It's wild. And that's all I have for The Wedding Planner, which is a movie that I greatly enjoyed. I, if I didn't see it opening weekend, I definitely saw it the following weekend. For some reason, I was either forced or I was, I had to watch my stepbrother for the afternoon and we went to go see it together. And he's not historically a rom-com guy, but he actually really enjoyed it, and we really liked The Wedding Planner, and we had some inside jokes around seeing it, and I remember the theater being packed, and it was an enjoyable movie, but again, 17% of Rotten Tomatoes tells us otherwise, but I wonder if it holds up in a second rewatch.
1: I feel like it would be, you know, again, like, much like How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days, if I saw it on USA or TNT or Bravo, I would just, I'd stop and watch it, probably, you know, yeah, and definitely leave it video. on in a background. Yeah, it's great background noise. Well, it's all you. Well, I did Made in Manhattan, which was another one of those rom-coms that J-Lo was in where it was panned by critics, but it made pretty good mo- money. Currently holds a 39% rating on Rotten Tomatoes. It was released in Dece- on December thirteenth, two thousand and two, and was directed by Wayne Wang, who's also known for directing the Joy Luck Club, Anywhere But Here, because of Win Dixie, and Last Holiday.
3: What happened? Last holiday. Oh, I like Last Holiday. It's fun.
1: Yeah, no, it is fun, and I love Anywhere But Here. That's another one that's on like TNT or whatever. I'm gonna watch it. Um, and then Joy Luck Club's a really good movie. Is Anywhere But Here the Natalie Portman one? Yes. Okay. And the one that Mona Simpson wrote. It's based on the book. She was Steve... She, I think she was Steve Jobs' half-sister, right? Like, they share a father.
3: Is this the one where she has a kid in a Walmart?
1: No, no, no. That That's where the heart is. Ah. I Came get the Came out t- around the same time. I know. Yeah, I, yeah, and I yeah. saw
3: both of them probably yeah. back to back.
1: Yeah. So, the, the movie was directed by Wayne Wang. The script was written by Kevin Wade, who is known for writing Working Girl, which also has kind of a modern Cinderella twist, so I thought that was kind of interesting. Um, He also wrote Mr. Baseball Junior or Junior. Wait, what's Mr. Baseball? That's with Ted Danson. It's one of those in the like early 90s, late 80s or a bunch of like baseball comedies that came out. I don't think I've ever seen it in its entirety, but um, it's one of those movies that came out around then. And then Meet Joe Black.
3: Oh, my God. Whoa! That w- you did not prepare me for that. I feel a little betrayed.
1: <laughs> he also created and executive produced that show Cashmere Mafia with Lucy Liu that lasted for about a season. Was that on ABC? Yeah, it was. It was like Sex in the City, but with women who have real jobs.
3: Oh, oh, and it has um, what's her face? She's always in shows that get canceled too. Yeah,
1: Miranda. Well, there's Miranda Otto. No. There's um, blonde chick was. Uh, She's from Sarah Michelle Gellar. What yes. the fuck is her name? I'm blanking on it as well. Uh, she
3: used to come into my old job all the time. She's I know. very nice. Like Vanessa something.
1: Yeah, something. Vanessa like
3: so no no no
1: no 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 no, no. No. whatever anyway it's gone now (laughs) the plot of this movie goes as follows it is a modern cinderella retelling so jennifer lopez plays marissa ventura a woman who works as a maid at the bearsford hotel in of course manhattan hence the movie's title marissa is a single mom to ty who's played by teen wolf himself tyler posey which i did not remember until i researched this movie Marissa's co-worker friends believe she has all the talent and skill to become a manager at the hotel and secretly submit an application on her behalf to become one. I'm so
3: sorry. Can we just pause for a quick second? Um, she was in that movie with uh, Vanessa Hudgens recently. That's like a very similar plot. Yes. Okay. Yes. That, that is a trip that they then remade this movie again.
1: Pretty much. <laughs> Great. One day, she's cleaning the room of a socialite named Caroline Lane, played by the late Natasha Richardson, RIP. RIP. And Caroline asks her to return a Dolce and Gabbana coat for her. One of Marissa's co worker friends, Stephanie, convinces Marissa to try on the coat, which of course looks amazing on her because she is JLo. Meanwhile, Ty, Marissa's son, meets Chris Marshall in the elevator. Chris, who's played by Ray Fines, which, oh my God, like did anyone ever expect to see Ray Fines in this? No. Is running for Senate and is talking to his campaign manager, Jerry, played by Stanley Tucci, while on his way to walk his dog.
3: The Tucci is loose.
1: Aw, yeah. Ty pets his dog and Chris and him start talking because Ty, in order to go full method for his school presentation on Richard Nixon, is listening to the 70s soft rock band Red on a Walkman. After Ty impresses Chris by knowing his political record as an assemblyman, Chris asks Ty to join him on a walk with his dog. Ty goes up with Chris to Caroline's room, where Marissa is cleaning slash trying on the Dolce Gabbana coat to ask for permission to go walk the dog. Chris is immediately into Marissa, of course, believing that she's Caroline Lane, the uh, socialite. The three go for a walk with the dog, and while it's clear the two have feelings for one another, Marissa tries to avoid seeing Chris after this out of fear that she will lose her job for it. Chris then sends a lunch invitation to Caroline's hotel room by way of the hotel butler Lionel, played by Bob Hoskins, and Marissa is in the room when Caroline receives it, because he believes, of course, that that, uh, Marissa is, in fact, Caroline. When the real Caroline goes to the lunch date, Chris is confused and later asks Jerry to find the real Caroline and invite her to a big gala that will help his campaign. Jerry asks Lionel to find her, and Lionel quickly re- figures out that it's Marissa he's looking for. So Lionel gives her the dinner invite but tells her to break it off so as not to ruin her future career in hotel management.
3: <laughs> Sorry, that's a funny sentence.
1: I didn't think I'd get to utter that. Yeah. Yeah surprises marissa gets a pretty woman montage of course and her friends around the hotel help glamour up for the night by doing her hair and makeup and loaning her a dress and harry winston diamond necklace as one does marissa still known as caroline to chris and chris have a great time at the gala which leads them to spending the night together at, in his room at the hotel the next morning the real caroline sees her leaving his room and tells the hotel management who then fire her in front of chris They break things off, and the press finds out about the story and continuously hounds the two of them. Marissa finds work as a maid in another hotel where Chris has a press conference one day about his run for Senate. Ty pulls a Hugh Grant in Notting Hill and attends the conference, asking Chris about believing in second chances while making jokes about politicians being forgiven. (laughs) Chris responds yes and walks into the crowd to follow Ty to the hotel staff room where Marissa is on her break with the press and his campaign manager following him. The two reconcile with a quote-unquote reintroduction where she introduces herself as Marissa Ventura, housekeeping.
3: I remember that so and vividly. And introduces
1: himself as Chris Marshall, senatorial candidate. We find out by way of an ending, magiz- an ending epilogue of magazine covers that Chris gets elected, Marissa starts her own hotel management business with her friends, and they live happily ever after. So despite mixed reviews, particularly around the predictability of this plot and the lack of chemistry between jennifer lopez and ray fine oh yeah which again they're both great actors just not together just not
3: yeah exactly they had negative chemistry it just Mm. they felt like two people giving a really long handshake it was very bizarre A very
1: polite handshake
3: i just i i don't know how you put those two together and think "Mm -hmm, yeah they fuck you're like wait what where
1: no (laughs) what planet Made in Manhattan went on to gross $155 million worldwide on a budget of $55 million. It actually went on to inspire a very popular telenovela called Una Made in Manhattan that was produced Fun. and aired on Telemundo. The I feel drew, robbed
3: that I didn't know about this. Right?
1: The premiere drew 1.6 million viewers and the series finale drew 2.1 million and had 168 episodes.
3: Well, it is a telenovela, Emily. Of course. <laughs> Minimum 100 episodes. <laughs> At least.
1: And that's a bad show. <laughs> Behind the scenes, uh, the film script is credited to Kevin Wade as the main writer, but John fucking Hughes has a story by credit under what? his usual pseudonym, Ed- Edmund Dantes, which is the one, his his constant pseudonym throughout his career when he wrote Beethoven and he wrote Drillbit Taylor and this movie or inspired the story Oh my those. god, I forgot he right. wrote Drillbit Taylor. Yes. So he is, that's the main character in Alexandra Dumas is the Count of Monte Cristo. And so he used that as his pen name uh, whenever he didn't want to use his real name. So he wrote the story and then Kevin Wade went on to write the script.
3: Whoa. Yes. I never knew yes. that.
1: On top of that, John oh, Hughes. I'm not ready. I know. Was originally going to direct this movie. Oh, my God. Which he, like, just to remind you guys, this is around early 2000s. John Hughes, like, stopped directing around the mid-90s and would write and produce things or had a story by credits here and there under pseudonyms. But he was out of the public eye after the mid-90s. Um, so this was, like, very crazy that this would have happened. Was
3: it supposed to be, like, a comeback vehicle? I believe or... so.
1: I believe so. It was also originally titled The Chambermaid and later Uptown Girl, which... Uh,
3: The Brittany Murphy movie? Hello.
1: Yeah, I know. Hilary Swank was originally set to play the main role. What? Yeah, I know. Okay. And Ray Fiennes' character was supposed to be a British guest, which would have been more, like, just would have been a way better idea. Because if you listen to Ray Fiennes' American uh, accent, like, he is a fantastic actor, deserves all the accolades, made a great Voldemort. He cannot do an American accent. (laughs) I'll just leave it at that.
3: Well, this was pre- Uh, Megan and Harry. So they didn't even know you could do that.
1: I know. Surprising. (laughs) They started filming this movie just a few months after 9-11. So as a result, um, they're pretty careful about not having too many skyline shots, if I recall correctly. Some of the interesting observations I made in this movie. Um, after learning that Kevin Wade wrote the script to this movie and Working Girl, this does feel like a Working Girl for the 2000s, except more explicitly tied to the Cinderella connection, since J. Lo is a hotel maid instead of a secretary. This movie had an amazing cast. Jennifer Lopez, Ray Fiennes, Natasha Richardson, Bob Hoskins, Priscilla Lopez, who's a very famous Broadway actress, Stanley Tucci, who might have been cr- the most underused in this film the
3: tooch was not loose
1: indeed followed by amy sedaris chris what yeah she plays um natasha richardson's best bitchy friend
3: oh yeah talk about perpetually the best friend
1: she's a amy sedaris judy greer i mean so many good best friend actresses in these movies casey rose wilson (laughs) chris ashman is in this i don't remember i, I don't know how you pronounce his last name he's in all those witt stillman films like the last days of disco and metropolitan oh, and sure. barcelona um, and so and then even tyler posey i hate a lot of children actors but he was i realized i just said children actors child actors but he was actually not annoying like he had his moments of course but he was not as annoying as some of the kids we've had to see in some of these movies we've had to review And while this isn't a great movie, I don't ultimately hate it because you have so many good actors in it. The same goes for the people behind the scenes. Like, Kevin Wade, again, wrote Working Girl, was nominated for every single award when that was released. Wayne Wang has written several great, or directed several great indie films. And this was a John Hughes story. So there's a lot of good elements there. And even, there's this great article on the AV Club that points out that while this movie is just, you know, another rom-com, like, there is nothing about this that's really special from a plot perspective that it's actually a well-directed film from a technical and camera angle perspective like there are really beautiful shots in this movie despite the film itself having a really kind of predictable plot a nice great piece on the ringer points out that even though this movie isn't as offensive as many other rom-coms we've had to revisit in the last few seasons it probably just shouldn't be remade because the main character is a woman with color which is great but she's playing a maid, and it's like you, you really couldn't have thought of something else. It truly really felt like
3: they were playing into a stereotype, absolutely. and it felt a little bit derivative, absolutely. Even for the time, even for the time, especially because JLo Lo had been in so many other movies where she
1: was didn't not have playing to a, a exactly.
3: Maid. She'd have to. She was a fucking wedding planner in San exactly. Francisco.
1: Exactly. Why she couldn't she just a be cop, an age, of, a pop singer? Why couldn't the, she yeah. be a
3: concierge? I don't know,
1: but. On top of that, all the other characters of color in this film are her friends, who are also maids as well, or are but you know are just people who work around uh, the hotel as uh, more domestic workers, and so it ultimately. J-Lo does get her man and gets the career she wants, as we find out in the magazine cover epilogue. The other thing that's really problematic here is that we're supposed to believe that, like, she's going to just give up everything, her career possibilities and all that, to be in a relationship with someone who ultimately will not suffer any consequences if they get caught. So she loses her job when he finds out that she is a maid, and she, okay. Okay,
3: but she was wearing someone else's clothes.
1: I'm sure. Fair. I'm
3: sure that's the fireball
1: offense, right? Yes, but at me at that point she wasn't. So like, the, she was she was wearing she was caught wearing the coat in the beginning, and she was scolded by the Natasha Richardson's character. But ultimately, like, it wasn't the big infraction. She just went and confessed because she was kind of jealous that uh, J Lo had ended up with. Ray finds his character instead of her because they had gone on a date before when he thought she was Caroline or whatever. But really, this movie, I mean, it's not one of those where it's like horribly, horribly offensive that it should have never been made and should never be made in 2019. But there are just enough things about it where I'm like, yeah, I think we can do better on original scripts, first off, and first and foremost, and then other things that would be better to remake.
3: Well, it's called, like, The Duo Over or whatever it is now with Vanessa Hutchins, so.
1: Yeah.
3: Um, and by the way, to just circle back to Cashmere Mafia, the actress that I was thinking of wasn't in Cashmere Mafia. She was actually in Lipstick Jungle, which was came out around the same time. Very and, similar. And her name is Lindsay Price. Oh, yeah. That was who I was thinking of. Oh. But, yeah, I remember when that Vanessa Hutchins movie came out where it was basically, like, younger and made in Manhattan, like, smushed together because the twist that Vanessa Hudgens is like her daughter that she gave up for adoption or whatever is I don't know something else I don't know where that came from but they like lying about how old you are and on her resume that whole thing and then getting a job and then pretending to be somebody else like that's kind of like made in Manhattan but updated to like not make her um, a maid not like there's anything wrong with it but Obviously, they were playing into some sort of stereotype in Made in Manhattan.
1: For sure. And,
3: like, to make her lesser than or, like, undeserving of, like, the white senator guy who probably has some, like, way more fucked up shit in his past than being a fucking maid. One can only hope to just be a maid.
1: Yeah. So that's what I have on Made in Manhattan.
3: Well, we're going to jump ahead to 2005 because, you know, I could talk about enough, which... I can't stress enough, is not a rom-com. <laughs> <laughs> it uh, It's actually what I, in my brief research before, I was like, this is too dark. This is, like, too dark and, like, a weird detour to take. Um, it's actually based on a book, which I didn't know, but I've seen enough a lot of times, partly because it's always on TV in some weird way, but I definitely either saw it in theaters or rented it because, of course, who's not a J-Lo fan? I kind of think of enough as being... Um, it's Home Alone, but make it escaping your abuser because the house at the end is really like amazingly booby trapped. But I do think enough, even though it's a twenty two percent on Rotten Tomatoes, has a good performance from Jennifer Lopez. I think Billy Crudup, who's like the abusive husband, is also good. It's like a great mix of scary. Sure, it could be like a Lifetime movie, but I feel like similar to Unforgettable with Catherine, Catherine Heigl, or even oh God. The Intruder, that movie with Megan Good and Dennis Quaid that came out this year, too, which could have been... Yes,
1: it was, what you're talking about. Yeah,
3: I saw... So me and my best friend love to see these, like, cheap thrillers in theaters because they're just really fun. And sometimes you do get really good actors, like a, like a Megan Good or a Katherine Heigl or a Jennifer Lopez, who are really great actresses, so they elevate this sort of, like, would-have-been kind of soapy-ish script and actually make it really fun and interesting and compelling, and they bring some layers and, you know, they polish the turd. They do their job. So, you know, that's enough. But, so in between.
2: Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door.
1: In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today.
3: Enough before Monster in Law in the JLo Canon. This is after Shall We Dance, which is, like, that Richard Gere, Susan Sarandon movie where she teaches Richard Gere how to dance so that he can, like, fall back in love with his wife or something. I don't, I remember seeing the trailer and being like, no nah, thanks, I'm good. And, this, and then after Monster-in-Law, she'll go on to do An Unfinished Life, which looks kind of like a budget indie that nobody really watched that, like, wanted to be something, like, maybe, like, a Sundance winner or a possible... Uh, indie darling that could get nominated for an Oscar. I don't think it worked because I don't remember this movie coming out. And I didn't bother to look at what it was about because the poster annoyed me. So a Monster-in-Law <laughs> came out <laughs> Mother's Day weekend in 2005 because that's exactly what you want to do with your mother on her special day. Drag her to a movie that basically says, moms are fucking crazy. This movie was directed by Robert Ludick, Ludek? 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 Lu. I can't read anymore. Lukidek.
1: Lucetic, It's either Luketic or Luketic.
3: It's directed by Luketic? <laughs> it's not getting any more confident. He's the director behind Legally Blonde. That's his biggest hit. Ah. And it was written by Anya Kacheff, who wrote Mother's Day, mm-hmm. and I, I'm holding her personally responsible for Julia Roberts' wig. Jayla plays another inexplicably Italian character named Charlie Cantinelli. Charlie is a quote-unquote free spirit, a.k.a. she's a freelancer. She walks dogs. She teaches yoga, fucking of course. And most importantly, she's an aspiring fashion designer. I fucking hate this. This is like some manic-prixie dream girl nightmare. Mm. Somehow she can afford to live in fucking Venice Beach. Must be rent control. She has a meet-cute one day with Michael Vartan's Kevin, which, again, like the least romantic name. I actually once broke up with a guy named Kevin in high school because Kevin's, like, not hot. Like, that's not a hot, that's not a good... (laughs)
1: Reminds me of Billy Crystal being, like, Sheldon. Like, you don't make love to a Sheldon. <laughs> to,
3: to bring
1: it back to when, when Harry Met Sally. Sally.
3: I mean, Kev is cool. Like, I like a Kev. But a Kevin, like, you insist on being called Kevin... Anyway, he's conveniently a doctor, so she'll definitely have this fashion line dream realized. Things are obviously amazing at first, but then things inevitably take a wrong turn when Kevin introduces Charlie to his mother, Viola Fields, who is played by Jane Fonda. Amazing. I don't even know. This is a great get. I have no idea how this happened. Viola is a former newscaster who was recently replaced by a younger woman, and she's in the middle of like a midlife crisis. On site, she fucking hates Charlie, which uh, immediately makes this movie not fun. Like, I get it's the point, but when she... Before, Charlie could even do anything terrible. She's like, I fucking hate you. Like, how does that even happen? Just hates the cut of her...
1: She's is better than that. She would have to have a reason to hate someone.
3: I mean, some of this really plays... Like, I feel like this is good groundwork for what will inevitably, inevitably be her character on Grace and Frankie. I feel like she does a lot of this, like, screaming in a beautiful home a lot really well Mm. and she does it a lot on grace and frankie and she is pretty bitchy and she is bitchy in the show so i and we hadn't really seen her be this kind of like bitchy saucy broad because she was like the muse and an ingenue and having threesomes with that terrible husband that she had you know like she was all of those things and then she was she hadn't been on screen and i'll talk about it a little bit later but she hadn't been on screen in a really long time so it was really an interesting departure But I think, you know, other than Jane Fonda's performance and and Jennifer Lopez, too, and anytime they cut to them, just the two of them interacting without the Michael Vartan factor, it is incredible that they have both of these fucking people in the same movie. And this is probably one of those movies that also, in retrospect, or maybe even at the time, did not pass the Bechdel test. So she hates Charlie immediately, and she becomes even more distraught when Kevin proposes to Charlie in front of her. She's obviously fearing that she's going to lose her son, but also she's in the middle of a midlife midlife crisis, and that's what you do when you need to, like, grasp onto control. You just immediately hate people, and so you're going to take it all out on your son and his seemingly nice girlfriend. Ruby, who's played by Wanda Sykes, is Viola's assistant and she tries everything with the assistance of Wanda Sykes' character. She tries everything to stop Charlie from marrying Kevin. At some point, Elaine Stritch gets in the mix as Kevin's grandmother, Gertrude, who obviously instantly loves Charlie because Gertrude and Viola have a blood feud because Gertrude... Her son married Viola, and she's always fucking hated her. And so the cycle continues. Don't you see? Jane Fonda has to hate Charlie. She has to attempt to fucking poison her by giving her nuts, even though she knows that she's deathly allergic to fucking nuts. I don't like, I've never found this to be funny. Be like, ooh, let's poison him. Like, even in Mrs. Doubtfire. Yeah, no.
1: Averages like, Allergies are not something to mess around with.
3: <laughs> yes, Pierce Brosnan is a dick, but do you fucking try and kill no, him? That's no. That's
1: not a hijink. That's like murder.
3: It's literally murder. If anybody could ever discover that you did not accidentally poison them, you would go to fucking jail. You'd be charged with fucking manslaughter. What are you doing? This is not comedy. It's insane. Anyway. (laughs) Oh, I'm dead. Like, why is that funny? I mean, I know you just laughed, I'm but. not
1: laughing at that. I'm laughing at the, like, thought at of our making great, that.
3: At our great bit work.
1: Exactly.
3: So Charlie rightfully fucking tries to call off this wedding, and Viola has some sort of, like, 11th hour fucking epiphany and realizes that she wants Charlie to stay, and they reconcile, and Charlie and Kevin eventually get married, and Viola and Ruby go off into the sunset, and that's the end of it. Monster Law is nothing special. It is fairly predictable. It does have a very... Uh, a, a followable plot, right? Like, you know, like this evil mother-in-law is going to show up and you're going to get that, like, it's just like hazing. She's got to hate Charlie, yada, yada. That they're going to make up and then she's going to end up with Michael Vartan and all this other shit. She's going to have her fucking design line and on this shop on Venice Beach but what's interesting is sort of like the behind the scenes so this film was a really big deal because of Jane Fonda's return to the screen she hadn't been in a movie since 1990 her last film before this was Stanley and Iris Jane Fonda had even confessed that the screenplay sucked but she chose this as her comeback vehicle because she knew a lot of people would go see it because of this was like the height of Jennifer Lopez popularity I'm not sure where we are in the *Benefar* timeline I think this is like the post but I feel like even I think that even after they broke up she like got even bigger because she ditched the fucking dud
1: she daced, and she was dating the backup dancer and i think it's around the time she probably married mark anthony
3: this follows another trend and also jane fonda's gut was right this movie made a shit ton of money even though it was panned by critics monster in law went on to make 154 million dollars on a 43 million dollar budget which is bonkers monster in law is jane fonda's top grossing film of the past quarter century Mark Ruffalo was the first choice for a lead over Michael Bartan, which honestly probably would have been a slightly better movie with Mark Ruffalo, but it's probably just because I'd rather see Mark Ruffalo's face. J-Lo earned another Golden Raspberry Award nomination for Worst Actress, but lost to fucking anti-vaxxer Jenny McCarthy for Dirty Love, and that fucking serves that dumb bitch right.
1: Two podcasts in a row she's come up.
3: Get her out of my life. <laughs> I don't watch The Masked Singer. Why is this happening to me? I feel like I'm getting targeted ads because I said Mass Singer out loud once. All right, well, that's all I have for Monster in Law, which I I did not enjoy seeing in theaters, have not really rewatched since, and even the trailer. It felt very, I don't know how else to describe this, but like 90s- Rom-com feel, where like the slapstick, like *Poisoner*, it's funny. But in 2005, and it, even shot-wise, like you were saying, there there are things about *Made in Manhattan* where like it's technically good and they make interesting choices. I it wasn't. It was much more of like a broad comedy, more slapsticky. And I feel like J Lo and Jane Fonda, even though they are, they can, and they they do really good physical comedy. I feel like it wasn't. They were doing that because of the scripts. It didn't match their skill, so they had to go down to the, the script's level, and it doesn't really quite always work.
1: No, I feel like, also, to be fair, like, I feel like it took about a decade for trailer directors to figure out how to cut rom-coms in the 2000s. Like, Oh, P.S., just, it,
3: they still don't know how to fucking cut a no, trailer. No, I mean, they're
1: still terrible at it, but it, like, in some cases gotten slightly better, but yeah. I mean, I feel like that was one where I'm surprised it took that long to, like, figure that out. I mean, still haven't, Totally. So, the movie I had to do uh, is. You had to? Well, anyone who saw this movie, it was a had to, is Geely. <laughs> oh, God.
3: How it, exciting.
1: You know, as many of these think pieces that I read while putting this together said, was Geely a really bad movie or did we just make it out to be that because of Benefer? And the, the answer to that question is yes, it is a bad movie. We did not need the whole Benefer fiasco for it to be a bad movie. It just was on its own a bad movie. Like you could have told someone to watch this movie, have no historical context of that couple, and they would still say this was a terrible movie. It currently holds a 9% rating on Rotten (laughs) Tomatoes.
3: Oh, good. I don't feel as bad about my Rotten Tomato mm, no, face. no, 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 no. no.
1: <laughs> See, I feel like with the with the with the Jennifer Lopez thing, it seems to be that like anything that has above 20 percent on Rotten Tomatoes is bound to make money with her. I mean, there are a couple of exceptions to that. I think Jersey Girl, which I'll talk about later. But I would well, say- Monster in
3: Law is like a seventeen as well. It's also low, but it made more money than the wedding planner. They were both. They both made back their budget and then some, which is technically a hit.
1: It is a hit. I, you know, I think we are so used to like Marvel Cinematic Universe numbers that we can't appreciate a rom com that would made like uh, over hundred million dollars. That's insane. So anyway, it was released August first, two thousand three, and it was directed by Martin Brest, who is best known for directing Beverly Hills Cop. Midnight Run, scent of a woman, and meet Joe Black. I'm another sorry, another meet Joe Black connection. Wait, why didn't you tell? Why didn't you lead with it? it? Was it's the same dude as Beverly Hills Cop?
3: His commentary on Beverly Hills Cop is delightful.
1: I feel really bad because after this movie, Martin Brest has never made a movie since Geely. So you get the
3: sense in the commentary for Beverly Hills Cop that he's had a very negative Hollywood experience. Uh, I don't think it's ever really worked out the way that he's wanted. So I'm not surprised that he retired early. And he
1: started out on top. So his film that he made when he was a student at NYU is one of those National Register films. Like it was entered in the Library of Congress as a significant film. So it sounds like he kind of started on top and then, you know, mid-40s, early 50s in his career – he makes Gili and it just completely bombs. That's and why happens. you gotta
3: so you gotta get like me and start in the gutter. It, that way exactly. that way it can start, only go up. It can only go up.
1: <laughs> I love you. <laughs>
3: we got two hundred listens on the first episode. Fuck yeah.
1: Woo woo woo. <laughs> so Ben Affleck plays Larry Gelee, who is in the mob but is low on the food chain. He thinks he's I fucking hot hate shit. this movie so much. He thinks he's hot shit, though. He's tasked by Lewis, who's a higher-ranking guy, to kidnap a prosecutor's mentally disabled, Baywatch-obsessed brother, Brian, who's played by Justin Bartha in his first major film role. And he's being kidnapped as leverage to ensure that their mob boss, Starkman, is not put in prison.
3: Who's playing... a terrible mob boss named Starkman?
1: It's very strange. And, of course, he's played by king of your heart, Mr. Al Pacino.
3: -ah! What do we got? We got a Geely? We got a Jersey girl? Show me a wedding planner.
1: Show me your hands, Jennifer
3: Lopez. Show me your hands.
1: Louis doesn't trust Geely with carrying out this plan through, so he hires a independent contractor, quote-unquote, named Ricky. (laughs) Okay, first of all,
3: fuck you guys, because (laughs) that's an insult to all independent contractors. Exactly.
1: Some of us have had to be that. Both you and I have had to be independent contractors. Ricky is played by Jennifer Lopez, and she is there to keep him in check so that she has eyes on him, but he has eyes on her.
3: Geely. That's so. It's even creepy when you say it, and you're trying to be fun. It's just like a creepy line.
1: I know. I know. This. I mean, this movie. I will read some quote highlights <laughs> that come out of Ben Affleck's mouth later on, and I'm sure I also just appreciate it.
3: I love that even in the movies world, Ben Affleck's like a fuck up, and he needs to be babysat to as, get through the day.
1: As the song said in Team America World Police, I need you like Ben Affleck needs acting classes. Pearl Harbor sucked, and I miss you.
3: I mean, I think my favorite is the rendition in Family Guy where he's like, "Oh shit, I'm gonna be a gonna be a British king in an hour." Hello, 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 nailed it, and then he leaves. Ben
1: Affleck in a nutshell. That is all. You get a a middle class Boston suburbs guy trying to do a joysy accent. Albeit very unsuccessfully. Why don't you drown me in the Atlantic? (laughs) Oh my. Geely cannot believe his boss doesn't trust him, and he's bummed out because he finds out. Sorry, also, it's wild that he's Geely and not Jennifer Lopez. I spent readers until 24 hours ago. I did not know that Geely was, in fact, Ben Affleck. So, Gili cannot believe his boss doesn't trust him, and he's bummed out because he finds he finds Ricky hot, but, oh, boo-hoo, she's a lesbian.
3: Ain't that always the case.
1: Rats. He's always, he's also, Don't you hate it when
3: you're always trying to bang uh, lesbians?
1: Oh, story of my life. <laughs> He's also annoyed by the fact that Ricky gets along well with this mom played by Lainey Kazan. And if you're counting, we've seen her play Jewish, Greek, and Italian like our girls Andrea Martin and Olympia Dukakis. The Take
3: a drink. You just said old millennials bingo again. Oh,
1: my God. The two love poking fun at him. Aww, Ma. Oh, my <laughs> God. Know, Emily. <laughs> I really got into method Ben Affleck for this <laughs>
3: I heard her practicing seconds before we flipped on the mics.
1: I mean, next episode, if we ever have to talk about goodwill hunting at one point, I'll practice five minutes prior on my Boston accent. (laughs) He also constantly gets annoyed by Brian, the uh, mentally disabled brother of the prosecutor, that they have kidnapped. His continuous requests to go to the Baywatch, because he's Baywatch-obsessed, And calls him a bunch of unfortunate slurs as a result, because LOL, it's 2003.
3: Well, also, as you stated earlier, Justin Bartha got simple-jacked in this movie. He
1: totally got simple-jacked in this movie. And we have Ben Affleck constantly telling him to, quote, act fucking normal. (laughs) I
3: fucking hate this movie. Martin
1: Brest, Oscar-nominated scriptwriter wrote this well look what's his
3: face martin mcdonough made three billboards outside of Evan, missouri <laughs> we can't all fucking make the hits i know
1: that's true meanwhile, or as my old screenwriting
3: teacher used to say it's not all art
1: <laughs> meanwhile a detective played by christopher walken question mark, shows oh up, shit i yeah, forgot shows up at Lee's house questioning him about brian's disappearance because he's a potential suspect and things begin getting dark when Ricky and Gillie are then tasked by Louis to cut off Brian's thumb, which neither of them want to do. Then, another weird plot twist, Gigli's ex-girlfriend shows up and accuses Ricky, who we have established is a lesbian, of changing her sexual orientation. And as a result, the ex-girlfriend tries to end her life by slashing her wrists. She ends up in the hospital where Ricky gets the idea to go down to the morgue in the hospital and cut a corpse's thumb off and send it to the prosecutor to pass it off as Brian's own thumb. Wow, that was a wild paragraph.
3: Wow, Bethany,
1: wow. I don't know what to say. Julie and Ricky, after that, then sleep together because, of course... Ben Affleck confesses his love, and all lesbians magically turn straight when Ben Affleck does that, looking at you chasing Amy. I
3: truly do not think that Ben Affleck's dick is that powerful. I refuse to believe that we live in this world. We can live in this world with a lot of other shitty, terrible things like climate change, but Ben Affleck's dick cannot make a lesbian straight. I just, like, do not believe it. It's bullshit. Curious? Sure. Straight? No. They're not no. fucking dating you. No, no, no.
1: And curious for, like, the story, so you would be able to tell people at a bar, I fucked Ben Affleck.
3: Yeah, and it sucked.
1: Yeah. <laughs> like his acting.
3: Hey, hey what do you got <laughs> That's my impersonation of Ben Affleck being Italian. <laughs> it was beautiful. Thank you.
1: They then, after sleeping together, have to meet with the big boss, Starkman. Like you do, Whoa.
3: that, like... <laughs> Changing my sexuality
1: pre big meeting sex sesh. You get a little nervous, you know. You gotta, you gotta calm down. Where he <laughs> Disgusting. Starkman then tells him he never ordered the kidnapping, but is angry because the fingerprint didn't match Brian's. And in turn, they have made a mockery of the organization.
3: <laughs>
0: what? what?
1: Basically, he's mad that like they didn't do it right, and be- and because they figured out the prosecutor figured out that it wasn't his. Brothers, oh 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 oh. Yeah. Okay, I got it now. Starkman then kills Lewis, Geely's direct boss, and right before he's about to kill Ricky and Geely for pulling this, Ricky convinces him not to do it by reminding him that they're only the only ones who know where Brian is and have the ability to make sure he never says Starkman or his organization was involved with the kidnapping and potential uh, botched severed thumb job.
3: <laughs> Take that up with a morgue. <laughs>
1: When they leave Starkman's place, G. Lee and Ricky decide that they're going to leave the mob once and for all, and discuss taking Brian back to where they found him. On the way to dropping him off, they discover Baywatch is shooting an episode on the beach nearby. Brian begs to be let off there, and they let him go. And G. Lee convinces oh, I Ricky to take his car to escape to parts unknown. But at the last minute, Ricky returns to pick up Gigli, and they leave together and supposedly live happily ever after. Okay. So behind the scenes, Halle Berry was originally cast as Ricky. Oh, no. Wild. But dropped out due to scheduling conflicts with the X-Men sequel X2, which, good for you, Halle Berry.
3: A much better movie.
1: J-Lo signed on for $12 million, and Affleck signed on for $12.5 because that's a What dude, the fuck? What a dude thing.
3: Maybe that's why they broke up. She's like, go fuck yourself.
1: If you did that, claps, snaps, whatever you want to say.
3: I actually have a working theory that the alcoholic that we know now is probably the person that she saw then and was like, okay. And also this getting 0.5 more than me, like, go fuck yourself. No,
1: seriously. Everything that I watched him do on like Project Greenlight and like anything, any kind of outburst that he's had since then. I was just like, like, let's not get into Project Greenlight. what a douche. (laughs) Martin um uh, so originally, Larry Geely died in the film, which would have probably been a better movie. Ugh, please, let us but kill him off in this movie. This tested poorly with the audiences, and so they reshot the ending.
3: Ooh, how dropped and gorgeous of them.
1: Uh, I know, we've had that happen twice this season. They so Brest allegedly butted heads with Revolution with this chief of Revolution Studios Joe Roth over everything from the original ending that we had just talked about to the movie's notorious poster, which is rumored to feature a Photoshop version of Jennifer Lopez's ass. I never thought I'd get to again utter this sentence, but here we are. The release and the reception of this film is probably more famous than the actual film itself. Because one hundred percent, it went on to gross. $7.2 million on a budget of 75.6 million. Less oh. than 10% made.
3: Oh my God. Yes. That's abysmal. It holds the
1: record as the biggest second weekend drop in brought box office gross of any film in wide release since that statistic was kept. It dropped by 81.9% in its second weekend compared to its first, grossing 678 dollars thousand dollars and its second weekend
3: oh my god that
1: that is Geely the negative response led the studio to pull the advertisement for the film and replace it with other jersey roll close (laughs) bad boys too
3: Oh, um, again, a better movie. Far
1: better movie. It was universally panned by critics, of course, everyone remembers that, who pointed to the film having so many convoluted plot elements and the leads having no on-screen chemistry. Surprise, surprise. The release and reception of this film, of course, coincided with Bennifer, the couple name given, the portmanteau, if you will, given to Jennifer Lopez and Ben Affleck. Many people attribute this terrible performance at the box office to on the annoyance that people had with the constant celebrity news cycle being devoted to them mm. which I kind of They were like with,
3: they were very much like a Jessica Simpson Lachey, where people are fucking everywhere. sick of them
1: everywhere. And but honestly, I think there are far bigger reasons why this movie didn't do well. Actually, I feel though. like they
3: have much more um Ariana Grande, Pete Davidson energy.
1: Yeah, for sure. For sure. Except I feel I have sympathy for Ariana Grande and Pete Davidson. I've sympathy for Pete. You have sympathy for
3: Pete Davidson.
1: He's he has like mental illness. Like that's not, and he's like grappled with depression and stuff. So that's. I mean, I mean, like he for for his off moments. I know he's not the best in many ways, but there are moments where he seems
3: like a decent enough turd burglar.
1: (laughs) It became the worst film in history. Or excuse me, slip of the tongue there. It became the first film in history to sweep the top five categories at the Razzie Awards, including Worst (sighs) Picture, Worst Actor for Ben Affleck, Worst Actress for Jennifer Lopez, Worst Director for Martin Brest, and Worst screenplay also for Martin Brest. And as I said earlier, Martin Martin Brest has not directed a film since Geely.
3: Martin Brest is having a tough time, y'all. Yeah.
1: Some quick observations before we end our time with Geely. Martin Bruss was a Golden Globe-winning Academy Award-nominated director. Oh, fuck. He directed Margot's Hero Al Pacino in an Oscar-winning performance. What happened here? Even for 2003, everyone involved in this movie should have known better. I fully believe sexual orientation is a spectrum, but for a woman to go from declaring herself very firmly to be a le- being a lesbian to She was, as I said
3: earlier, a career lesbian. Career
1: lesbian. To immediately hooking up with a dude is a little far-fetched. They could have at least said she was bisexual and not made it look like being a lesbian is something that you can be convinced out of with Ben Affleck's dick. Margot and I rewatched the trailer together and they have edited this film to look like, aw, she's just not that into him and just casually leave out that she's gay. Justin Bartha's character is cringeworthy and evokes that one scene in Tropic Thunder. (laughs) He got simple jacked. He got simple jacked. Martin Breast claims the role was based on patients he observed while working at Bronx State Hospital, but the offensiveness of this character makes me question this. He at one point says, quote, I think that's where the sex is, and later calls coming a pea sneeze and le- and says God bless you to his crotch when he comes in his pants in Gigli's car, because of course he's sex obsessed. Like, what the actual fuck?
3: I just feel like, okay, even if Best case scenario, this was something that you observed, right? Okay, fine. You don't have to do this. No, no one is making you no add one this in. He could just. None of your
1: head is not making you do this. I mean, he
3: could just be—I don't know. He could have amnesia. Like, I have no idea. You could have done this a number of ways. Yeah. He could have had face blindness. I don't know. Just like pick, just like not a real pick, thing.
1: Pick something. Is that is making him like not going to offend people. A,
3: a horny mentally disabled person is—that's gross. You're being—you're being, you're so being gross. a grosso.
1: So I'm going to leave us with Julie on a few Ben Affleck quotes from this movie because I wouldn't be doing my due diligence if I didn't. A speech Julie gives to Ricky at one point in his apartment could be best described as a soliloquy of trash. Quote, I am the fucking sultan of slick. I am the rule of fucking cool. You want to be a gangster? You want to be a thug? You sit at my fucking feet. Gather the pearls that emanate forth from me because I'm the original, straight, firstborn, most pimp, mac fucking hustler, original gangsters, gangster.
3: Somebody has seen swingers one too many times. Oh,
1: yeah. Couple more quotes. In every relationship, there's a bull and a cow. And this is what he tells.
3: I cannot yes. handle another bull and cow reference. Okay, go ahead.
1: He tells Ricky this to like imminent to kind of assi- or, um, assert himself as the alpha male in the situation. It just so happens that in this relationship we're in right here with me and you, I'm the bull, you're the cow. And then of course, <laughs> cuz this movie couldn't get any more offensive towards lesbians, quote, that's why these lesbians are always going out and buying spending all their dough on, like, you know, sexual appliances and erotic monkey wrenches and shit, trying to compensate for what they don't have, the penis.
3: I hate everything that you're saying.
1: This movie did not even deserve the $7 million.
3: Well, it made 600000 the second weekend, which is, it's what she deserves, dot gif.
1: For real. This is a nice segue into Jersey Girl for three reasons.
3: I do feel like you cannot talk about one without the other. I, even in my brain, hold the two very closely together. <laughs> I,
1: I mean, I forget sometimes which one came before the, like, if one was- So it was Julie first? Was, it was Julie first, Julie first then Jersey okay. Girl. Okay. This is a nice segue into Jersey Girl for three reasons. One, this was Ben Affleck and Jennifer Lopez's other movie that bombed. Two, Ben Affleck has two movies where he has the power to make girls go straight for him. This one, and the far better film Chasing Amy, which at least has the character of Amy having dated men and women versus a quick, sharp turn for Ricky and Geely because penis does that with Ben Affleck.
3: You spend enough time with a man named Geely and your (laughs) fucking panties get soaked.
1: Magic. (laughs) And number three, because both Chasing Amy and Jersey Girl were directed by Kevin Smith. Ugh. (laughs) Jersey Girl was released March 9th, 2004, is, of course, directed by Kevin Smith. I'm not going to go into all the movies Kevin Smith directs.
3: You know who Kevin Smith you is. You know who Kevin Smith and is. And if you don't, you're probably, like, anywhere near a computer or a handheld computer known as your phone. You can go figure Google
1: it, or it out. It. Or bang it. Currently hold... Ooh, a- and let us know
3: what your favorite Kevin Smith movie is because we got into a debate.
1: <laughs> yeah, I said... Originally I said Chasing Amy and then I was like, no, I think Dogma's my favorite.
3: I said Mallrats and then I switched to Dogma and now I'm back to Mallrats. <laughs>
1: Currently holds a forty-two percent rating on Rotten Tomatoes, which whoa, yeah, it's not that. That's the highest
3: one that we've talked about, right?
1: And 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 for 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 good reasons. Like it is really not the reasons horrible, are good, Emily. It is not a horrible movie. It got a lot more crap than it deserved. It's not. Is it Kevin Smith's best movie? No. Is it one of his really good movies? No. Absolutely not. But I wouldn't go as far as to say this is a really bad movie.
3: I mean, it's still rotten at forty-four percent. That
1: is true. And.
3: I, yeah, I'm sure you'll get to it.
1: So the basic plot here is Ollie Trinke, played by Ben Affleck, a successful PR guy in New York, after his wife, played by Jennifer Lopez for 10 minutes, dies of an aneurysm while giving birth to their daughter named Gertie, who's named after her mom. Ollie basically lets his shit go crazy um, after he had stopped taking care of his kid um, and kind of left her to be taken care of by his father, played by George Carlin. Uh, One day, George Carlin can't take care of the kids, so Ollie has to bring her to work with him at a very nice... I'm sorry.
3: George Carlin's in this? Yes. Okay, I've never seen this movie because this was around the time where the Bennifer stuff was... Just everywhere, out of all control, of the time, all over
1: the place. And then I think that yes. they even
3: had delayed releasing this they movie, did and they because bro-
1: of how bad G. Lee was. Yes, and yes. then
3: they broke up by the time and that then, it came yeah, out. Exactly. And then when it came and out, and no, and no one
1: cared. And what's crazy is that J Lo is only in this for about ten minutes. It's basically but that became a part cameo. Of the, it
3: became part of the joke, though. Like
1: I think I remember hearing people were clapping when she died, which is horrible. Like no scene depicting a woman dying during childbirth is like worth clapping over. I also no that is very like
3: is. the story of us or whatever that fucking misery porn movie with uh olivia wilde and oscar isaac is called how of that movie well yeah to die while giving birth like she might as well fucking get hit by a bus stepping in front of a while she's pregnant
1: yeah
3: might as well be the same thing yeah
1: so anyway basically ollie loses his job because one day when he has to bring his baby to work with him He is having a meltdown because there was a snafu with changing the diaper, shit went down, and he basically has a meltdown where he claims his client, Will Smith, and this is like 1995, 96, is never going to be a good actor and is trash, and that's right before Independence Day comes out. So people remember this as a crazy meltdown. He's blacklisted by every PR firm in the city, and he is forced to move to New Jersey where his dad lives and raise his daughter there. So, flash forward, fast forward to seven years later. She's in elementary school, he is a civil servant with his dad, and uh, she and his and Ben Affleck, he um, Ben Affleck and his daughter like to go rent movies together. One time, he goes to the store and uh, he has a meet cute with Liv Tyler, who plays a video store clerk slash grad student, who convinces them to rent Dirty Dancing, which is highly inappropriate for a seven year old. <laughs> And uh, over time, they develop a relationship. At one point, they get caught having about to have sex by their daughter. And ew, 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 yeah, ew. ew. Make this of stop. Those, this, of course.
3: this stopped being about Jennifer Lopez a while ago.
1: And basically, he tries to get his PR career back after he has a successful PR moment, if you will, with the local townspeople for shutting down a street for doing construction work. <clears> he goes and tries to get his job back in New York while everyone disapproves because they love their life in New Jersey. Um, he, after running into Will Smith in in the waiting room for this job interview and will smith doesn't know who he is will smith talks about uh not never spending time with his children and ben affleck is like that's enough for me to say no i'm not going to go to this job interview and he goes back to new jersey and they live happily ever after and that's pretty much it fun facts <laughs> this movie did not make very much money i don't have the exact number it made more than g lee but not very much The film's budget included $10 million for Ben Affleck and $4 million for Jennifer Lopez's 10 minutes of screen time. The weird thing that makes this a full-blown Armageddon reunion was that Bruce Willis, rather than Will Smith, was going to be the original cause of Ollie's problems. And later on in the movie, was going to show up in the cameo when he's in the waiting room to interview for his PR job. And then, finally, Kevin Smith wrote the first 50 pages of the script with Bill Murray and Joey Lauren Adams in mind, which is crazy. What the fuck? Yeah. Okay. And that's all I have for Jersey Girl.
3: I mean, yeah, it's not like we could have ended on Monster in Law and it would have been an uptick. (laughs) (laughs) I just feel like Jersey Girl and Julie together are so much bad movie. All crammed together. It's it's that benefer effect. It's exhausting and we're exhausted now, which is perfect because it's time to end this episode. It's time
1: to end this episode.
3: Thanks for listening to another episode of Old Millennials. You can find us on Instagram, we're at the Old Millennials Pod.
1: And we're also on Facebook at the Old Millennials Pod.
3: If you liked what you listened to, please go back and listen to our older episodes. They're all wonderful in their own way. And also, don't forget to rate and subscribe and review us. It helps other people find us. Or if you don't want to do that because you're like an off-the-grid type of person, which, you know, if you listened to our last episode, I talk about someone who is just like that but ended up on Next anyway. Why don't you tell a friend about this very show?
1: We love that as well, and we are on Spotify and iTunes, so check us out.
3: You can also follow us on Twitter. I am at Marg She Wrote. And
1: I'm at Emily A. Vision.
3: And we don't have a Twitter for this podcast because who wants to follow a podcast Twitter? Too
1: much work.
3: So until next time, we say bye. bye. Don't get hit by a dumpster when you get your shoe caught in a manhole. Yikes.
0: If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers.